thank you, Lord, for your words. I thank you that it's a lamp to our feet, it's our light to our, our path. And Lord, we're just praying, even in this month, Lord, as we speak on the Holy Spirit, as we speak and honor the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, I pray that you would manifest your presence in a new way. Lord, we just say right now that we are not content with what we're seeing. We're grateful for it, but it's not going to stop us getting in the way of hungering and desiring more of your presence, more of your anointing, more of your transformation, more of you. Holy Spirit, we honor you. We exalt you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. Have you ever noticed that humanity tends to fear that which it does not understand. We fear that which we don't understand. You know, uh, our telephones, the invention of telephones, and we all carry telephones everywhere we go in our bags and our pockets. They're probably near you right now. One of the funniest things in the world to watch is someone who has lost their cell phone and the tapping that happens. It's very, very amusing. But when telephones first came out, human beings were actually quite fearful of it. They were scared that if the telephone wires broke, that the contents of the conversation would fall out. They were scared that their privacy would be breached. They were afraid uh, that it would attract thunder and lightning, that if they held it to their ear, they would get an electric shock. In fact, some people actually thought that it would attract evil spirits and they called it the devil's instrument. Would you believe that? Telephones. Because they didn't understand the technology and so they innately feared what they did not understand. I remember when I was young, uh, my parents, uh, my grandparents have a beach house in Pawanui, and uh, it was about 500 meters from the beach, and every time we walked, I had to walk to the beach, I had to walk past this house, and I don't know what it was about this house, the color or the shape of the house, but that house inspired fear in my heart. In fact, I called it the witch's house, which gives you an insight into my juvenile mind. And so scared was I of that house that I would walk the entire way to the beach. But then the moment that I had to go past that house, I would break into a full out sprint and I would sprint the entire way home. And I remember one day my mum was like, Hayley, you're 13 years old now. You should get over this fear. <laughs> held on to it till I was 13 years old. And she was like, there was an open home at the, the, the house. And so she took me to the house and she said to the real estate agent, um, we don't want to buy this house, but my daughter's afraid of it. So can I show her around it? And I walked around the house and I can honestly tell you that the moment that I saw inside the house, the moment I got some understanding, my fear left because you fear that which you do not understand. And I so often think that that's our issue with Holy Spirit. We see his manifestations. We feel his power. We feel his presence in a way that is difficult to articulate. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And we struggle to explain it. And so oftentimes we fear it. That's why a series like Outpouring is so critically important to your discipleship. It's so critically important to your walk with God because in this series, we will try and dispel some of the mystery which surrounds the person of the Holy Spirit in the hope that you will grow more and more open to Him and His working in your life. That is our prayer in this series. See, one of the reasons that I think that there's a bit of mystery which surrounds the Holy Spirit is that we don't see him, we see what he does. 
He's like the wind. You don't see the wind, but you can see its effects. That is what the Holy Spirit is like. And so what tends to happen is then we define him not by who he is, but by what he does. We think that he is a power. We think that he is an, a force. We think that he is an experience. We think that he is an energy. But let me tell you something today. He is not defined by what he does. You might be empowered by Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean he's just a power. You might experience Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean he's just an experience. You might be moved by Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean he's just a force. You might be energized by the Holy Spirit of God, but that doesn't mean he's just an energy. No, he's more than that. He is a person, not a power. He is a person to get to know. And so before we begin this series, I wanted to kind of wrap in everything that we are going to say in the midst of this month, I want to wrap it in two key revelations, two key essential beliefs of Christianity that we believe about the Holy Spirit. These are kind of the big archways which we will discuss everything within it. The first thing you need to know about Holy Spirit is Holy Spirit is God. Holy Spirit is God. He is the third member of the Trinity, part of the eternal, self-existent Godhead. He carries all the essential attributes of God. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. He is eternal, uncreated, unchanging. The Holy Spirit is God. And there are many places in Scripture where the divinity, the deity of the Holy Spirit is affirmed, and even more than that, where the divinity of the Holy Spirit is assumed. But I want to give you some scriptures this morning, and these are just obviously a couple, but I want to give you some scriptures for you to stand on if anyone comes to you in your world and tries to challenge the deity of the Holy Spirit. Firstly, here's an example from the book of Acts. Acts 5 verse 3 to 4 tells the story of a couple who come to the early church with a gift And they say that the gift is all of their money, but it's only part of their money. This is what it says. It says, Then Peter said to Ananias, Why have you let Satan fill your heart? You have lied to the Holy Spirit. A couple of verses later, he says explicitly, You weren't lying to us, but to God. Lying to the Holy Spirit in the book of, uh, in the early church, is explicitly linked to lying to God. The Bible also refers to the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit in the same sentence and many benedictions, but famously in the baptismal command, we're commanded to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The second thing you need to know is that the Holy Spirit is a person. He has all the aspects of personhood. He has a mind. He has a will and he has emotions. The Holy Spirit speaks. He has a voice. So as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, that's Hebrews 3, 7. He has emotions and can be grieved. Ephesians 4, 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has a will and he will make that will clear to us. Acts 16.6, Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Here's what you need to know about Holy Spirit. He is the personal presence of God. 
the overwhelming consensus of Scripture is that he is the third person of the Godhead. He is a person and he is God. And friend, can I tell you that the reason that I ran through all those scriptures is that even though it just feels like information, it is critically important that we do not fall into the trap of treating him as a power as opposed to a person. When we treat him as a power, we think it's a power that we can possess and bend to our will that we can command, that we can get hold of, that we can dictate to. When you understand that he is a person, you understand that he is not a power to command, he is a person to submit to. We don't bend the Holy Spirit of God to our will, we bend to his will. Because he is not a power to command, he is a person to submit to. And so with these two big rocks in place, that he is both God and a person, what is he like? And that's what we're going to begin to discuss in this series, what the Holy Spirit of God is like. You know, in language, whenever you begin to describe something that is hard to put into words, what you utilize is pictures, right? You utilize metaphors or similes, pictures which help describe the indescribable. If you're trying to tell someone about an experience or a person or an attribute, you might say something like this, I don't know how to describe it, but it's kind of like, and then you'll lean on a picture. You need to understand that the Bible does this a lot about Holy Spirit. There's a lot of times that we lean on pictures to describe what he's like because ultimately he is beautiful beyond description. He is too wonderful for words. And so where we can't wrap English language or any language around him, we lean on a picture. I'm going to give you some examples of some bad metaphors to give you just an illustration of what I mean by a picture. These are ones that were apparently written in someone's exam. Are you ready for it? I'm going to give you a cute cue right now. These are meant to be amusing. So even if you don't find them amusing, you could just force out a laugh for my benefit. Is that all right? All right, here we go. Just giving you the heads up. She had a deep, throaty, genuine laugh like the sound a dog makes before it throws up. <laughs> you guys are such a generous church, eh? Anyone's new here is going to be like, that poor girl, what is she doing? He was as tall as a six foot three inch tree. <laughs> Alex Steary is working hard on these, eh? God bless you, Alex Steary. I'm not going to do any more. I won't put you through that anymore. I had one more, but I'm going to cut it for out of, out of just out of generosity and graciousness. But good fake laughing, give yourselves a round of applause. That was funny. Oh, thank you, Jake. It was funny. Metaphor, metaphors are important because they give us language to describe the indescribable. And that's why the Bible so often leans on metaphor when it comes to describing the Holy Spirit, because I said before, he is beautiful beyond description. When it comes to describing the majesty, goodness, faithfulness, greatness of God, words fall short. And so when words fall short, the Bible often employs pictures. And what Pastor Don and I are going to attempt to do over the course of this series is we're going to talk about some of the pictures that the Bible uses for the Holy Spirit. And I hope that as we 
talk about these pictures, we will uncover more and more about the character and nature of this person who is God. And so after that incredibly long introduction, I'm going to get to the content of the message today and tell you that the Holy Spirit is like fire. The Holy Spirit is like fire. Fire is the most common symbol of the Holy Spirit found in Scripture. It's often seen as a sign of God's presence. Uh, For instance, when God makes covenant with Abraham, uh, there's a picture of a flaming torch and a smoking pot. When Moses encounters God, God is there in the burning bush. The pillar of fire was a thing that accompanied the Israelites at night. When Solomon dedicated the temple, fire came and consumed the sacrifice. Fire is an incredibly vivid picture of the presence of God. And in the New Testament, it is linked explicitly with the coming of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Here it is. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Then in Acts 2, there's this famous description of the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church. And this is what it says. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that came, that separated and came to rest on each. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So what can we learn about the Holy Spirit from the metaphor of fire? Well, the first thing you need to know is that fire consumes. Fire burns up everything in its path. Fire consumes any fuel that you put in its direction. When a forest catches on fire, that forest fire has to be fought in order to be stopped. Why? Because fire consumes. And when the readers of the gospel read of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with fire, they would have thought of the devastating force of fire. Because in the ancient world, fire was an incredibly feared thing. When something in a city caught on fire, you were in danger. There was no firefighting equipment. All the materials were combustible. When Rome caught on fire in AD 64, it burnt for six days. And about 14 districts in Rome were completely destroyed. Why? Because when fire catches, it doesn't just touch, it consumes. It doesn't just rest on, it engulfs. The nature of fire is that it consumes. This is where it gets convicting for us. Because have you ever heard this language that has worked its way into our Christian vocabulary? Holy Spirit, we want a touch of you. Just a touch. Friend, when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes like fire. And fire doesn't just touch, fire engulfs, fire consumes. In the book of Acts, when it talks about how tongues of flame came to rest on each, that word rest is slightly misleading in the English. 
It doesn't mean rest like he jumped and played on one shoulder. It doesn't mean rest like he's touched here and stayed here. That word rest actually means immersed. Friend, tongues of flame don't just come and touch. Tongues of flame don't just come and rest. They come to immerse. How about this? They come to baptize. I'm interested that this word rest and touch has worked its way into the church because I wonder if we're more comfortable with a touch. God, you can touch this aspect of my life, but don't you dare touch that one. You can rest on this shoulder, but don't you dare come rest on that one. You can touch this aspect of my life, but I don't want to let you near these other aspects. Friend, it is a misunderstanding of the nature of the Holy Spirit. He is like fire. He comes to consume, to engulf, to immerse, to baptize. See, so often in the house, we pray, Holy Spirit, more of you. What a strange prayer. Holy Spirit is the one who fills all in all. You can't get more of perfection. You can't improve on perfection. The prayer shouldn't be, Holy Spirit, more of you. We should say, Holy Spirit, you can have more of me. Because he is like fire. He comes to consume, immerse, baptize, not just part of you, my friend. He wants all of you. This is an encouraging thought because you need to understand that the second aspect of fire is that fire does not just consume, fire transforms. Fire transforms. We utilize this principle every single day when we cook food. We utilize the transformative power of heat and fire to make your evening meal delicious. Fire is transformative. In fact, ecologists now believe that forest fires are an important part of the eco-cycle of forests. Because every so often a forest fire needs to come and erase the old. Come on, somebody. And erase the old. That was your cue to say amen. Fire needs to come and erase the old so that the new life can bud and grow. Man, I have a word for someone in the house who feels like their life is being burnt down. And you feel like the foundations of your life have been burnt to the ground, friend. That is the conditions for new life to bud and grow. Erase the old, bud the new. You know, even in New Zealand, the most fertile part of the land is oftentimes the parts of New Zealand which has experienced ancient lava flow. Because land that has been immersed in fire is transformed into fertile soil in which the new can bud and grow. Fire doesn't just consume, it transforms. See, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was fire that took the life of an animal and made it worship, a pleasing aroma going up to God. It's fire that takes a life and makes it worship. It's fire that takes a sinner and makes them clean. When Isaiah was before God and saw his glory and exclaimed, woe is me, I am an unclean man, what happens? A coal was taken from the fire and pressed to his lips and it was said of him see this has touched your lips your guilt has been taken away your sin is atoned for 
You know, just recently I was talking to one of our amazing Elam Leadership College interns, and she told me she was radically saved out of a lifestyle of uh, of sin. She was trapped in a lifestyle of sin, and she said that the difference for her when she got to became became to overcome those strongholds in her life was when she was baptized with the Holy Spirit, when she was immersed in the Holy Spirit of God, when she was consumed in the fire of God. She said when that happened, it broke all the chains of addiction of her life. Why? Because the nature of fire, friends, isn't that it just consumes, it's that it transforms. Friend, when you let the Holy Spirit get a hold of your life, He will consume, but yes, He will also transform. If uh, the band would like to join me. And so what's our response? If fire consumes and it transforms, what is our response? Well, our response is actually quite simple. Our response must be full and total surrender of every aspect of our lives to God and offering that he receives as worship. And I've got the wrong uh, scripture reference in your notes, which I apologize for. It's Romans 12, 2 in your notes, but it's supposed to be Romans 12, 1, so I'll read it out to you. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Remember that I said earlier that fire was involved in that Old Testament sacrificial system when things were laid on the altar. Friend, the Holy Spirit comes like fire, and if we want to be consumed and transformed, then we need to lay ourselves on the altar of worship. We need to choose to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. You need to understand that fire has a rich association with worship in the Bible. Remember, sacrifices to God in the Old Testament are often burnt. The smoke would rise before God as a worshipful aroma. The worshiping angels around God's throne in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 are called seraphim. And the translation is something like burning ones. But let me push you one step further. While fire in the natural might consume everything in its path, holy fire only consumes that which is unholy, unrighteous, impure. Holy things are not burnt up by holy fire. They are set alight by it. Burning, but not burning up, kind of like the burning bush was in the story of Moses. Listen to me, church. When you lay your life on the altar of God and allow the fire of God to burn up the impure, the unholy, the unrighteous, the motives of the heart, the deceptions that we've been holding to, the attitudes and understandings that are resident in us, when you lay that on the altar, your intentions and your desires, your idols or the things that you have let get between you and God, the unforgiveness, when you lay that on the altar of God and allow it to be burnt up 
by holy fire. The worshipful aroma that rises before God is one that calls you a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You need to understand that the truest form of worship is far more than a song. It's far more than a melody. It's far greater than a shout. It is a life laid down for His glory. To be set alight by the fire of God, burning but not burning up. The aroma of our lives rising before Him as the truest form of worship. To the person in the house who has been struggling and endeavoring to be more Christ-like every day, hear this. God calls that your most true and proper form of worship. See, church, I gotta understand, you got to understand that I love worshiping with you. Sunday morning, worshiping in this house is my favorite time of the week, but I'm not going to pull punches this morning. Your best song with an unsurrendered heart is a hollow song because the song was always meant to give expression of the posture of your heart. A posture that says, oh God, I will not live by my will, but surrender unto yours. I will lay it all out on the altar of God to let it be consumed and transformed. I'm not going to bring a song if I won't bring my heart. I'm not going to bring a melody if I don't bring my surrender. I'm not going to bring my shout unless I bring a life laid down and this our God calls worship. Worship. Friend, it is our desire to be worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And to do that, we need to lay our lives on the altar of God. And so with every eye closed and every head bowed, Perhaps you're in this place and you have never made that complete and full surrender to God. Friend, when we talk about the sinner's prayer and salvation, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about making Jesus Lord of your life, Lord of every aspect of your life, Lord of every part, Lord of every crevice, Lord of every crack. We are talking about making him Lord of all. And so today, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Because, friends, Him consuming you and transforming you comes with you submitting to Him. And so today, would you lay yourself on the altar of God? And if you're in this place and you're saying, that's exactly what I need to do. I need to lay my life down. I need to give my life to Jesus, holding nothing back. I'm all in. I'm going to count to three. And if that's you, raise your hand. One, two, three. Thank you, God bless you. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else today you want to make that decision? Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, God bless you. I see that hand. Church, repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Today, I give my life to Jesus, holding nothing back. I turn from sin. I follow you. Thanks to you. 
I'm free. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen and Amen.